Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director at Word on Fire, and we're joined back stateside with Bishop Robert Barron. He's back from Rome from his big ad limina visit, which we'll talk about here. Bishop, it's good to have you back. Hey, Brandon. Good to see you. I'm just um, still recovering from jet lag a bit. I slept okay last night, but it always takes me about five days to recover when I get back from these trips. And now that you're out in Santa Barbara, it's a grueling trip back and forth yeah, yeah. to Rome. Multiple flights, driving Terrible. two hours back to Santa Barbara. It's tough. I'm in a nine hour time difference, you know, so my poor body had zero idea what time it was or anything. So now, it always while, takes me a while. While you were there in Rome, you wrote a couple of articles. One of them was reflecting yeah. on your experience with Pope Francis. So you spent over three hours in a discussion with Pope Francis, along with the other bishops from yeah. California, Nevada, and Hawaii. And then another article reflecting on uh, your experiences praying at the tomb of St. Paul. So I don't want to yeah. dwell too much on that. But in addition to that, any other major highlights or, or important things that happened during your trip there? Oh, it was, a, it was a wonderful trip, memorable. Uh, I think we'll do a, a special video on the visit with the Pope, but that was uh, extraordinary to spend that amount of time with a figure of that uh, you know, importance. For me, the bottom line was it, he really was a spiritual father. That was the, the atmosphere he created. That's the, the persona, definitely, that he exhibited at that meeting. And, and I was actually quite close to him. Just the, the way it worked is Archbishop uh, Gomez came in right after Cardinal Mahoney was, you know, it's everything in Rome is very hierarchical. So the Cardinal first, then the senior Archbishop Gomez, and then after Gomez, his auxiliaries. So that meant that I was fairly close to the front. I was maybe five chairs away from the Pope. So he was, I don't know, you know, 12 feet away from me. Um, so just that in itself was kind of extraordinary meeting him, talking to him face to face. Uh, one interesting thing, you know, is he spoke, he told us that he would speak to us in Italian and he had a, a translator who translated into English. But then I'd say two thirds of us who spoke to him, uh, spoke to him in Spanish. So we didn't use the translator. And he said to us, look, use any language you want in this uh, exchange. So I asked him a question in Spanish and then he responded though in Italian, which was then translated into English. So it was an interesting little linguistic uh, uh, moment. Again, we're going to have much more recapping yeah. the ad limit of visit. We'll do a few more videos on that. So look forward to that. But Bishop, while you were in Rome, I think you met with the Holy Father on Monday. And mm -hmm. the day before that, Sunday, I texted you. There was lots of news flying around. We learned about the death of Kobe Bryant, who obviously yeah. is a Catholic in your archdiocese of Los Angeles. Tell me about what it was like when you heard about it and what it's been like since then. Yeah, it was uh, shocking. When I first, I think it was something came over the Facebook or something, and I thought, oh, this has got to be a hoax or this can't be right. And then, of course, it was uh, confirmed. And I was so struck because he was on his way to a sports facility in Thousand Oaks, which is in my pastoral region. And where the helicopter went down was just outside my region, Calabasas, um, but just south of the 101 expressway. So when I was coming home yesterday, and I was still pitch dark, it was early in the morning, but I went right past the site where his helicopter went down. And then what we did is a lot of us from Southern California over in Rome were monitoring the reaction back here. And I remember I said, along with some others, to Archbishop Gomez and and some of the other more senior bishops, you know, I think we should really do something. We should react from Rome because it's such a strong reaction back home. So we did a little video. I don't know if you saw it. 
the Southern California bishops, we were at, I think, was it John Lateran or one of the Basilican churches? We just had mass. And then we gathered together and we just said some prayers, you know, for him and his family. So, um, yeah, it was, um, it, it's disturbing. I mean, whenever someone that young and then this, the special tragedy of his, the death of his daughter and the other people too on the helicopter, it was just especially tragic. But then that Kobe, by all accounts, went to mass the morning of his death with his daughter. Um, so there's a lot of poignancy, a lot of things very moving about it. Well, in today's episode, we are going to be talking about the intellectual life. And uh, you and I were joking beforehand about about asking you about it and you just saying, what's that? Or I don't have one, you know, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I know we get questions all the time from people about Bishop Barron's reading habits, his writing habits. How does he study? Oh. How does he write? I think a lot of people know you, Bishop, through your online work, through your YouTube videos, but not as many people know about your academic background that for years you were an academic professor. You taught at the seminary, graduate level courses in theology and philosophy. You wrote scholarly articles, scholarly books. It's a huge part of your life. And I want to unpack that here and maybe glean some tips for aspiring intellectuals as well. Hmm. So uh, first of all, when did you first become interested in the intellectual life, the life of the mind? What drew you in and maybe around what age? Well, it was it was probably the Aquinas moment that I've talked about many times when I was a freshman in high school and came across Aquinas' arguments. I mean, prior to that, I was always a good student. I always liked to read. When I was a kid, so let's say, you know, I'm 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, I read sports books, uh, I devoured books about baseball, football, basketball players. Uh, Jerry Kramer, I'm dating myself here, but uh, Jerry Kramer, the great... Uh, uh, guard for the uh, Green Bay Packers. Dave DeBusher wrote a, uh, a memoir of the New York Knicks 1970 season. I read about 10 times. I'm not kidding. So I, I love to read, but I wasn't exactly an intellectual. Um, it was probably that moment when I discovered Thomas Aquinas and um, realized how thrilling it was to come to know something in a deeper way. And that lit a fire and led me to a number of other books. In those early years, they, well, I was going to Catholic school, but I, I had no mentors, really, because it was like a little private hobby or obsession of mine. So I began reading philosophy long before I really should have, right, without the proper uh, supervision. But I loved it. And uh, and then, you know, the way it goes, you know that when it comes to reading, um, one thing leads to another, and the flame kind of just keeps growing in intensity as you come to know things. Um, so that's probably where it started. Talk a little bit about the transition from that sort of life where you're just reading broadly, you're reading things that interest you, one book leads to another, but then into serious study where you're doing research, you're writing papers, mm -hmm. you're focusing. When did that transition happen? And then how, how'd you learn to do that? How, how did you learn to do serious scholarly type work? I probably learned that at Catholic University. So, you know, I went to Notre Dame my first year, then I entered the seminary and I you know, was writing papers and that sort of thing. But when I became um, a Basilin scholar at Catholic U, Basilin is a scholarship program for philosophy. And when I went to Catholic U and I worked with some great master teachers, uh, John Whipple, Monsignor Whipple, still alive and well, uh, Monsignor Sokolowski, I've talked about many times, Professor Thomas Prufer, who was Sokolowski's intellectual hero, uh, taught us under their tutelage, I began to apprentice, I'd say, to the serious intellectual life. 
what was involved in um, in research and writing, especially see writing. I think of Sokolowski, you know, in his seminars, we read the great texts. We had one in political philosophy. We had one in phenomenology and, and we read the great texts. But then he had us every single week write. Proofer did the same thing, now that I think about it. Write a two-page paper. Uh, not on the 20-page you know, research, but a two-page paper on some topic that emerged from the reading. But the point was to train us to hone in on something and to make a real argument. And I remember both Proofer and Sokolowski, to their great credit, were real tough with us. And we got bad grades in the beginning because they were trying to tell us, no, no, that's not what I want. I remember Proofer saying, this is just a little research paper. I don't want that. I want you philosophizing. I remember one time, my first year with him, Sokolowski, the first A I got on a paper, and he said something like, you've made a real argument here. See? And so they were, they were training us. They were masters, we were apprentices in how to uh, make a point clearly, incisively for Sokolowski, who famously said, philosophy is the art of making distinctions. I remember with this paper, it's funny how all these years later, I still recall it, the first A I got from him. It was, it rests upon a key distinction. Like, okay, here's the problem. Here's how you know people have tried to solve it. Here's the distinction that, that uh, sheds the key light. And then I draw this conclusion. And to do that in no more than two pages, double spaced. I mean, so it's gotta be succinctly argued. I think now, every time I sit down to write a column, I mean, that's what that is. Uh, I hope it's something that's succinctly argued that depends upon a key distinction or two uh, that makes a, a succinct point. All that I was being trained by Sokolowski. Another, um, memory I have from those years, uh, Dan Dahlstrom, who was a young professor at the time. Now he's a, he might be retired by now at Boston University, but he was a Hegel, Marx, Heidegger specialist. And one day in class, so I was what, 19 or 20. And um, the issue was uh, divine foreknowledge and human freedom, right? Classic problem. And so he set it up and then kind of invited us to enter into it. So with some trepidation, I raised my hand and I made some observation about it. And then he decided, okay, this is the moment when I'm going to, I'm going to go Socratic on this kid, you know? So then he began just asking me further questions about it, forcing me to say, uh, yeah, but, and then, well, what about this? Well, all right. Yeah. And before I knew it, I was really in a dialogue with him. Not that I was anywhere near his level, but it was, it was like, you know, think of, uh, someone being trained in the martial arts. You have a master and a, and a disciple, and he's trying to draw you in by fighting with you. And the fighting brings out your capacities. That's what was happening that day with him. Uh, so it went, by the way, in the Middle Ages. That's how young Thomas Aquinas, young Bonaventure, young Dun, Dun Scotus would have learned their art by a kind of uh, you know combat, a sort of combat, intellectual combat. So I, I think the Catholic U years, to answer your question now, uh, is where I kind of learned the, the disciplines of, of high-level academics. I like the discipline of the short essay, the two-page paper. And I think a lot yeah. of listeners here will resonate with the fact that when you're in middle school and high school, 
the longer the assignment, the more daunting, right? If the teacher says five right. pages, oh, 10 pages, oh my right. goodness, how am I ever gonna do that? But then when you get to more serious level work, maybe graduate level work, longer is easier. You, you can write on mm -hmm. and on and on and on stuff, but if they say you need to write a one page summary of this major contentious argument or topic, yeah. it's harder to synthesize it all down to just a short little summary. Yes. And I'll, I'll say this too, Brandon, uh, anyone that has aspirations to write a book, like a book length study, make sure that you could summarize your book in those two pages. In other words, there's an argument, there's a kind of beginning, middle, end, there's a problematic, there's a key distinction, there's a resolution. Uh, even if your book is 500 pages long, it should have that uh, basic structure to it. Uh, that's an old trick, by the way, in uh, homiletics, which I've never forgotten. Uh, years ago, a professor said, you know, those little signs outside, usually the Protestant churches, but we have them too. When there's like in one little line, uh, this, the sermon is summed up. He said, if you can't do that with your own sermon, you haven't thought about it enough. And there's a lot of wisdom to that. It doesn't mean you're going to become simplistic. It means even if you're giving a 15-minute, somewhat densely packed sermon, you could summarize it in two or three lines that you put up on a sign. And if you can't do that, you don't probably have the argument of it clear in your own mind. That's true of a sermon. It's true of a, an essay. It's true of a book. We've talked about this on the podcast before, specifically in regards to the modern philosophers, that one mark of a good thinker, a good intellect is clarity. And mm -hmm. in a lot of the modern philosophers, you find the exact opposite. They're so yeah. obtuse, so difficult to dig into and comprehend. Is, is that still, you think, a necessary component of good thinking is clear thinking? I'm not, yeah, I think it's, it's one of the marks of it. And there, I agree, it's the fellow I mentioned before, Walter Kaufmann, the great historian of philosophy, who makes that argument, I think, very uh, persuasively, that people like in his mind, Heidegger and Hegel are good examples of people that write very poorly. And then it's a kind of a mask for or sign of imprecise thinking underneath. Those who are who are easier to read are, in fact, better philosophers. And see, we have kind of a prejudice in the other direction, don't we? Like we say, oh, that was pretty easy to read. It must not be very deep. No, he argues on the contrary. Now, I'll give you the best example of that in my mind and someone I've used for a model for many years is Robert Sokolowski. Read his texts on phenomenology, which are extremely clear in their articulation and very deep in their perception. I always compare it to like looking through very still clear water at the rocks on the, on the uh, uh, base of the lake or something, you know, you're looking, clearly and deeply at the same time. Um, I think that's a mark of, of good writing. And um, in a way, it's easy to be obfuscating. It's easy to use all kinds of jargon and, and double speak and, and writing, you know, kind of Byzantine sentences. Um, in a way, that's easy. But if you're, you're really, you've grasped something of importance you know the distinction upon which it depends. Well, then you can lay it out with some clarity. So read uh, Sokolowski, I think, is a good example of that. 
All right, we've talked about Robert Barron, the young student at CUA. Um, from there, you go to get your doctorate at the Institut Catholique in Paris. Um, mm -hmm. Then you become Father Robert Barron, the seminary professor, then Bishop Robert Barron, still writing academic books and papers. How have your study habits changed over all those years? Have, or, or maybe they haven't. Are they the same now as you were back then, or have they changed significantly? Well, I would say that I'd say voracious reading has always been part of it. Uh, now, I must say, you know, my, my eyes aren't up to it the way they used to be. Your eyes do get worse as you get older. I remember you and told me, do all your serious reading in your 20s and 30s, that, that after was, that, you have to back off because of your eyes. Hans Kung said that, and I don't often agree with Hans Kung, but I think he's right about that. He said, read all your Hegel and Bart and Kant and, and, and company when you're young and your eyes can handle it. Um, no, I, but I've always been a, a voracious reader and, um, tried to stay at it. So I'd say this, Brandon, use Aristotelian language. I, I have a virtue when it comes to reading, by which I mean, reading's a good thing. I have habituated myself in such a way that it's easy for me to be good in that regard. <laughs> you know, it's not a struggle like, oh, I've got to sit down and read. No, I, I like reading and I, I savor the opportunity. Um, that's what a virtue is. It's when you find it easy to do something good, you know, where a, a vice is when you find it easy to do something bad. Most people, Aristotle said, are, are, um, uh, continent or incontinent, meaning they, they struggle to do the good or they struggle against evil. But when it comes to reading, I've, I've got the virtue, I suppose, the, the habitus of, uh, of reading that's been true all my life. Let's talk a bit about your reading habits. Uh, how do you typically read? Are short bursts here and there? Do you sit in a chair and read for three or four hours, long sessions? What does it look like for you? I used to do that latter. I, I remember when I was in Paris this many years ago, um, and, you know, I was a full-time doctoral student. So my whole job was to read and write. And no one knew who I was in those days. I'm in a little, this little tiny room at the Redemptorist house on Montparnasse. And uh, that's what I did. And I remember my friend uh, Benedict Gavin, who <clears throat> was and still is a monk at um, St. Anselm Abbey in uh, New Hampshire. But he, he came up to my room, I remember early in the morning, and I was, I was on my chair, in my chair, and I had a little, it was my steamer trunk that I brought my things over. That was my coffee table. Had my feet up on that, and I was reading something. And then he went away, and he came back like at 8 o'clock that night for something else. And there I was in the chair. And he said, you know, you should have been a monk. You're like a total monk. I said, yeah, I've been basically just been reading here all day. Um, now, I can't do that anymore. I just physically can't spend hours and hours and hours at it. Um, still, though, like, for example, recently I was just on an airplane coming home from Rome. So long flight to New York, long flight to L.A. That's a good time for me to read. Um, so I had... Uh, and for enjoyment, I'm reading this this biography of Napoleon. And um, what do I have now for my serious reading? Let's read something else. Um, that's a good time for me because you don't have distractions. There's really nothing else you can do. You got pretty good lighting on an airplane. So that's when I do kind of long-term things. I've always got a book next to my bed, so I read before I go to sleep. Usually something more relaxing, like I finished Churchill biography, now the Napoleon one. So I might read like, you know, 10 pages of that before going to sleep at night. Um, and then when I'm doing research, it's a different thing because there you might sit down and you're saying, I'm looking at things that are, are pertinent to this part of my paper. And it's not maybe the whole book I have to read, 
but it's a certain section I've got to concentrate on. However, however, prior to that, let's say I've got a paper in mind, like I've got to write that paper on whatever it is. I'll say, okay, I better read the following like seven or eight books as the deep background for that. And um, here in Santa Barbara, what I love to do, because the weather is typically nice, is I go out my back porch. I've got a porch on my household patio and there's a nice uh, chair out there and I read. So there I might spend hour or so with one of these serious books. Another, another thing too, uh, the Napoleon biography I'm just reading, but whenever I'm reading for serious purpose, I've got a pen in my hand and I'm always annotating and underlining and checking and question marking and commenting as I go. And that's not just, it keeps your, your mind in the game, the way to keep your score does, you know, when you're watching a baseball game, you don't keep score, you're not going to save it, but you keep score because it kind of keeps your mind in the game. Well, it, that, that accomplishes that particular end. But also then when you go back to that book and you say, okay, I got to find real quickly what it was that's central here. Oh, yep. There Oh, yeah, that check mark. That's that's the section. So I always read serious books with the pen in hand. I always like the marginalia from famous authors, you know, being able to yeah. go and you feel like you're reading the book with them. I think I actually have a couple of your books that you've written in before. And again, it feels oh, really? like I'm reading this with Bishop Bear and I get his thoughts here on every other page. It's like a gift you can give as part of your, you know, lasting legacy. Yes, and it's funny, when I go back, I find a book, let's say, in my own library that I haven't read for a long time, and I say, oh, there's my notations, and I'll say, like, what? That's one of my things, <laughs> question mark, exclamation point, or no, exclamation point, or yes, you know, or right. I'll put that in sometimes. Um, and so that can be illuminating when you go back and say, what was I thinking when I was reading that book, you know? A lot of people have hangups when it comes to finishing books. They think if I start a book yeah. and I'm a third of the way through, even if I'm not enjoying it, I got to power all the way through. Do you feel that way? Do you, do you quit books early? How often do you do it? Well, sometimes I, I'll give you some uh, insight here from uh, Jack Shea, who was a teacher of mine at Wonderline. Jack said, I think very wisely, if you're into a book and you realize I, I could have written this book myself, you should stop reading immediately. <laughs> And I know that sounds a little bit pretentious, but not really. Once you've, you know, you, let's say you're in your field, so my field of philosophy or theology, and you're reading a thing like, yeah, okay, I, I know, I, I could write the rest of this book if I had the time, then I put that one away. Uh, I don't like leaving books unread. That always kind of bugs me. If I find a book on my shelf and there's a there's a bookmark in it, and I realize, oh yeah, I stopped reading at that point. Uh, I don't like that. Uh, so generally, I'll get through it. Um, one thing, you know this too, Brandon, is the deeper you go into your own field, usually you've got a sense for, okay, this part is really important. Or this next section, yeah, I kind of got that. I, I kind of understand that. I, I'm going to skip to something else. And it's okay, I think. If you have enough of a feel for your own uh, uh, tradition. Like let's say Newman is one of my great interests. Um, I've written a lot about Newman. Uh, as I'm reading a book on Newman, I might come to a section and say like, okay, I know, I know exactly what he's going to do here. So I'm going to just skip through to an area I don't know as well. That's okay. Uh, generally though, I like to plow through a book. All right, let's switch gears from reading to writing. I want to talk about your writing okay. habits and your history with writing. Uh, many people have remarked on your clarity 
of writing, your voice is unique. Uh, how, how'd you develop this? Did, were you writing the same way back as a CUA student as you are now? Did, did your voice develop over time? Talk about that. It gets, I, mean, I think it just gets better the more you're at something. If you're a basketball player and you watch a film of yourself playing when you're in eighth grade and in high school, then college, I hope you see improvement. And it, that just comes from a lot of practice. And from writing bad sentences, I, I take sentences very seriously. A sentence is a beautiful thing. To craft an English sentence is, first of all, like breaking rocks. Uh, I don't find writing easy. People say that, like, oh, you write so you know easily. I don't. I don't write easily. I think it's like breaking rocks. I think it's very, very hard work. And you know, we look at the great... Um, literary figures, um, they often say the very same thing. They don't just sit down and start blah, 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 blah. It's, it's, it's a craft and it's a, it's a slog at the same time. So I, I work at it. And, um, you know, for clarity, that I think is the great, um, that's the great master rule of writing. You, you write to be read, you write to be understood. Uh, doesn't mean you write simplistically. I don't think I write simplistically, but I, I want to be understood. I want to communicate. And that takes some effort, you know, to do that. Any one of us in our chosen field can use all the jargon language of that field. And jargon's okay. It's shorthand for people who are who speak the same kind of argot. It's a it's a shorthand to um, you know, get quickly to the point. But if you're trying to communicate, the, the more you've kind of larded your prose with jargon, it probably um, obviates that process, you know. Um, but it's I, I would stress how hard it is to write. Um, you know, I, I'll pay tribute to someone here. He just died of, of less than a year ago. His name was Mr. Langendorfer, and he was the freshman English teacher at Fenwick High School. So that same year I discovered Aquinas, I would have had Mr. Langendorfer for English. And he was like Sokolowski this way, where he made us write something, I think it was every week. And uh, he was brutal in his criticism. But see, man, was that useful and helpful. Uh, if you get your paper back, and, and no matter what you wrote, the person says, Oh, I love you. It's wonderful. You're expressing yourself. Aren't you great? I affirm you. Well, that might be good psychologically. It's not good in your formation as a writer. Langendorfer was extremely tough on our, these little novice writers. But what he was teaching us was the craft of putting a, a, an English sentence together. So not just the level of, of clarity and grammatical correctness, but also issues such as rhythm and uh, contrast and um, the interest formed by uh, shaping different types of sentences. So I, I still have it. I was what, 13 when I first heard this, but I still have it in my brain don't just do subject, verb, object <laughs> sentences. Mix it up. Uh, watch the way you're using questions. Watch the way you're using introductory phrases. Uh, watch the rhythm of your sentence. Uh, does the writing gallop a little bit? Does it have a little energy and verve to it? Um, he taught us a lot of that when we were just kids. And um, he was tough on us. The way I'm sure, you know, you've had coaches that were tough on you and they're always the best ones, right? So I'll pay tribute to him. He was a, a big shaper of my own writing. 
what writers would you look to for inspiration? Which ones do you think have mastered this craft of writing good sentences? Uh, I mentioned already Sokolowski, and I'll say it again. In terms of academic writing, he's one of my models of how to write uh, well. You know another one, Brandon, uh, and I've mentioned him many times before, Thomas Merton's writings, I always found uh, compelling from a stylistic standpoint. Merton was not a flashy writer, not sort of self-consciously, you know, Baroque or anything in his style. As a young man, he was very influenced by Hemingway. And there's some of that, I think, in his mature spiritual writings where there's a, I call it a clarity and precision in the language. Um, sophisticated, yes. Dealing with, with complex ideas, yes. But in a way that was um, kind of bracing in its directness. So the, Merton, to me, has, has been a, a model of, of good theological writing. I mean, at the level of style here. Let's say that you've blocked out a few hours to, tomorrow morning and you're working on a serious book or a serious paper. Talk us through what that morning looks like for you. What, what is the environment like? How do you work? How, how do you write something? Are you jumping back and forth between books? Are you just focused on the computer? What does it look like? Well, the first thing you said correctly, and I see I did much more of this in my previous life when I had more time for it. Um, I think of my little cubbyhole office at, at Mundelein. A key to me, first of all, is to take the time. I used to leave the breakfast room at 8.30 because I said, well, it's time. I got to get to work by nine, you know. Uh, it always takes a little bit of time for me psychologically just to kind of get in the mood to write. And so that means... The door is closed. Uh, maybe the window is open. Uh, I spend a little time in sort of contemplation, sipping coffee, you know, just this is sort of getting in the mood. Um, in terms of the actual writing, what I typically do when I'm doing a book or a serious article is I write what I call outline slash draft. So I'm not sitting down and say, now, here I am writing my book. What I'm doing is writing a draft of, let's say, this paper. And that's letting the ideas kind of tumble out on the page without a lot of discipline. I'm not doing the Langendorfer thing there of I'm really crafting sentences with enormous care. I'm just kind of letting the argument or ideas uh, come out. I'm, I'm attentive at this level to the thing having a coherence and a structure to it. So let's say I'm writing away and I think, no. That belongs later. I got to do something in between. Well, move that down a little bit in the page and then put some more ideas in there. So when it, it finally comes time to writing the article, I might have 25 pages of these notes, I'll call them, or rough draft or outline. And then I'm old school. I still don't quite know how to do the two screen thing that well. So I like to just print that out and then I have it next to me. And then I'll sit down and actually craft the sentences, but kind of based on, you know, I often compare it to Brandon um, when, when like Michelangelo was doing the Sistine ceiling, he would draw what he called a, a cartoon, cartone, means like, like a, like a big drawing. And then he would actually affix that cartoon to the plaster and he'd make little marks in it for the outline. And then he would, you know, paint. Well, in a way, that's what that draft is. It's like a, Cartone. It's like a, a first run at it, which is, is now the foundation for the actual uh, crafting of the, of the paper. 
All right, let's close with this. I know we probably have a lot of people listening to this that are aspiring intellectuals. Maybe they're younger, high school, college age, and they want to go into a full-time intellectual academic career. Or maybe they're just lay people like me, married people, working normal jobs, and they want to ramp up their intellectual life. What advice would you have for aspiring intellectuals? Take the time. I'll, I'll use Merton's line about prayer. Take the time. Um, also read, I'd say, carefully. Um, what are your interests? What, what do you want to focus on in your own writing? Well, then only read, you know, good books. Don't waste your time on a lot of, of fluff. Uh, if you, you realize, okay, this book I'm reading is either not that good or it's not pertinent to my interest, put it down and find those that are. Um, so take the time and be a little bit discriminate and careful in the kind of books that you choose. So you don't end up wasting a lot of time. You can do that with a book. You can spend a lot of time and say, I don't know, either I could have written this thing or uh, I'm just not getting that much out of this one. Uh, life is short and choose your reading carefully, I would say. Well, that sound means it's time for our question from one of our listeners. Today, we have one from Lori in Georgia, who is asking for book recommendations. Very apropos to this topic here. Uh, here's her question. Hi, this is Lori from Georgia. I would like recommendations of books to be read in English and literature courses at a Catholic high school. Thank you. Okay, yeah, I, I'm presuming from the question that she wants books that really have explicitly Catholic themes in them, because I mean, there's so many great books that high school kids can be drawn into. But, you know, I, I mentioned Graham Greene. Uh, a lot of high school kids read uh, The Power and the Glory, which is a great book at many levels, um, but it does have a lot to say about the Catholic faith. Um, obviously, a hero of both of ours, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, read the, uh, the whole thing or parts of The Lord of the Rings. I love Evil and Wall. Maybe it's a little bit much for high school kids, but uh, Brideshead Revisited. I'd recommend any of the short stories of Flannery O'Connor. Uh, if you got the stomach for them, <laughs> you've got the courage for them. Uh, have the kids read a few of those stories. Uh, and then, you know, heck, um, Chaucer, parts of Chaucer, if they're in more modern English form. Um, Dante, of course, uh, parts of the Divine Comedy. I think those would be all wonderful things from a literary standpoint for Catholic kids to read. And if you're looking for more of Bishop Aaron's book recommendations, we put together a whole PDF of his favorite oh, books right. organized yeah. by category. You can find it at wordonfire.org slash books, wordonfire.org slash books. And there's a whole bunch under the literature category that uh, your high schoolers might like there. All right. Well, listen, as we wrap up here, I wanted to mention one special thing we're doing for Lent. I've mentioned in the past that we're sending out these Lent Reflections booklets, and we've sent out thousands of them already. If you haven't got yours, uh, go check it out. Wordonfireshow.com slash Lent, I think is the URL. If not, I'll put the correct URL under this video. Um, but there's one more thing I wanted to highlight, and that's our Engage platform. We've created this to help parishes to evangelize not just the people in their pews, but people that don't even show up. Uh, we have a really uh, cool uh, technology to allow us to do that. Uh, also, whenever your parish signs up for this Engage tool, 
all of your parishioners get access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs. They can watch the Catholicism series, the Pivotal Player series, all that and more. And we've decided to give it away completely for free throughout Lent. Your parish can sign up for this Engage platform for free throughout Lent. Um, again, all parishioners get access to Bishop Barron's videos and all sorts of other cool stuff. So um, check that out. You can find it at engage.wordonfire.org engage.wordonfire.org. So sign up and get it for your whole parish free during Lent. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Mm -hmm.